Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. Michael and I will share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic Rachma. Michael is the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, For more information on Michael or myself or forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, your co-hosts, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is Thursday, April the 28th, 2016. And our call-in number is 646 200 4169. Press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and your questions because that makes this your show. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart. Welcome, everybody. We're honored that you're with us once again to uh, carry forward this conversation about forgiveness. And the the process of forgiveness as it was originally brought to planet earth 2000 years ago is so has been so turned around inside out upside down backward that it's really a challenge to and and, and it takes deep engagement for the mind to start to shift out of its old ways of thinking. You know, they've done some research on perception and they have a, they, they've got a thing they call it, they've, they've labeled premature cognitive commitment. It's a pretty interesting term. What does that mean? Well, let's say I'm one of the people who's the subject of their perceptual experiments and they have an object that's, let's say, 2,000 feet away. And I'm supposed to look at that object from 2,000 feet and see if I can figure out what it is. Well, if we've got somebody who stands there and looks and says, I don't know what it is. So they move the object to 1,900 feet. I don't know what it is. 1,800 feet. I don't know what it is. Pardon me. Let's imagine that one person at 1,800 feet says, that's a refrigerator privately to themselves. So they now have their minds generating a perception of a refrigerator from that stimulus that's 1,800 feet away. The other person hasn't made up their mind yet. So let's say the, uh, the box moves to 1,500 feet, 1,200 feet, 900 feet. Person says, I don't know. I don't know. The other guy says, oh, it's a refrigerator. 800 feet, 700 feet, gets to 700 feet, and this person clearly sees, oh, that's a stove. What they found is that while the person with average sight, what's called sight anyway, who made the choice at 1,800 feet to call it a refrigerator, will not be able to see the stove when it's at 700 feet, where everybody else who looks would see it's a stove. They've already made a cognitive commitment to this is a refrigerator. And, you know, without trying to get into technical specs, because I don't know what the numbers would be, but that, so the person who clearly sees, and let's say, you know, you've got 100 people and everybody goes, yes, that's a stove. This one person who made the commitment to a refrigerator when it was way out there at 1,800 feet, when it gets to 700 feet away from them, they're still calling it a refrigerator. And it gets to 600 feet, and it's still a refrigerator, and 500, and 400, and 300. And then all of a sudden, 
something breaks through their perceptual construct, and they go, oh, my God, that's not a refrigerator, that's a stove. So that's a basic summation of what some of the, actually the CIA's experiments were on perception. And so it takes a lot more input for somebody to shift their minds out of a position that they've already taken than it does to see something differently. And so the, the, the place I want to go with today's intro is I was actually in a conversation with someone yesterday and they had just gone through a relationship split. And the one person that I was speaking with said, quote, why would I want to be with someone who would hurt me so much? And so my next question to her was, well, gee, what happened? Did he hit you with a belt? Did he slap you in the face? Did he cut you with a razor? Oh, no, no, he didn't touch me. He just really hurt me deeply. So, well, wait a minute now. Tell me about that again. How is it that he hurt you? Oh, he said this and this, and oh, you should have heard how vicious his words were. Now, I agreed with her. His words were vicious. His actions were absolutely, totally vicious. But I couldn't support her in her belief that he hurt her. Now, she's got a premature cognitive commitment based on probably a thousand generations of conversation and language. So so now, you know, where we use the example of the object was 2,000 feet away and it had to get to 300 feet before they could see it was a stove. Now we're talking about perceptions that come from 3,000 years ago. Go back through the genetics and the belief in our bloodline 3,000 years ago that it was that spouse that left that hurt me so much. It was that person across the road that hurt me. And 2,900 years ago and 28 and 27 and 26 and 2,000 and 1,800 and 1,400 and two weeks ago and yesterday, there's all of that cognitive commitment to a false belief that somebody outside of us can hurt us. And my offering is that short of coming up and cancel the thought, punching you in the nose or something similar to that, nobody can hurt you. But if you have a whole storehouse of hurt in there, I've been working with a woman several years ago and she's in just all this trauma around what to her mind is an event that happened, something that was said to her. And her words were, can't you see how much fear I'm in? And, you know, it's like, man, it's really obvious how much fear you in. But do you actually think what that person said caused your fear? That's an insane premature cognitive commitment to a lie. Whenever I say the words, and, and just take a look at, you know, it's not just our bloodline that's been doing this. It's our whole culture. When in all of your interactions, and this comes into our workshop communication, did you hear what I think I said? When in all of your interactions, you know, when you were a kid and, and you know, dad maybe came home late from, from work, dinner was ruined, mom had thrown it out, and he walked in the house. And how many had a mom in that situation said, you know, dear, when you come home, go out and get drunk and come home late from work and don't let me know and dinner's thrown out? That really brings up a lot of anger in me. And what I would really like to do, dear husband, is heal my anger. Would you support me? How many were brought up with a dad who, when the next morning that flat spot in his head he realized was from the frying pan after getting hit, having come home drunk, gets up in the morning, got up in the morning and said, you know, dear wife, when I realize that you've hit me with the frying pan and I get wake up in the morning with a headache, that really brings up rage in me. And what I realize and what I know is I need to heal my rage. Would you support me? You know, when I put that out at a workshop, you know, we've got an audience of a hundred, a couple hundred people. Everybody laughs because nobody's ever heard that. Nobody's ever seen that in their families. I mean, I've actually had two people over the years 
who've said, yeah, my dad did that. In both cases, it was the male figure, parent figure. One of them was a young man whose father had started studying with me when the young man was about three years old, and he said, my father did that. And one of them was a young lady who's, who actually came to Heartland with her father at the age of eight. And she said, my father did that. Otherwise, I, I've never had anybody who in a classroom, when I asked that question, put their hand up and said, yeah, I had a parent who knew they were responsible for their own pain and the output of their own minds. And the rest of us, what we've had modeled all our lives. And so think about the impact. And this is, I, I'm laying this all out because it explains the difficulty of shifting out of the false belief that you hurt me into the truth of, I've got a lot of hurt stored away. And by God, you sure are an expert at resonating it and bringing it up for me. The reason why that's so important is because as long as I believe that you're the one who hurt me, then I will never heal my hurt. And the energy of my hurt is what ultimately, literally, physically is going to kill me. Because it's an energy that doesn't belong in cells. Now, it's interesting the way the creator set the universe up. It's kind of a cool situation when you realize that the whole thing is designed to heal you. And so if you hold hurt, if you hold littleness, if you hold pain in yourself and you blame everybody else, then you will literally set up an energy field based in that pain. And because the universe is governed by the law of resonance, anyone who's in resonance with that pain is going to be drawn to you and the behavior that's going to tend to come out of them, the actions they're going to do, the words they're going to speak, the behaviors they're going to do, are going to tend to be in line with whatever's in them that's resonated by your hurt. And so the scenario is perfect to heal you know, life abhors you being diseased, diseased. There's no such thing as physical disease. There are only energies in our cells that don't belong there. And when we put an energy into the cell that doesn't belong there, we, the cell says, ouch. When the cell says, ouch, and I look out and try to find somebody to blame, and I say, you hurt me, the cell that's trying to tell me that there's an energy in there that doesn't belong, I force it to shut up. I force it to hide its information. I force that cell to hide its understanding, and I literally build a whole perceptual world of how somebody else hurt me and how it's their fault. And if only they change, I would never have, to deal, never have to deal with this hurt. You need the people in your life that can, in the culture's words, hurt you. Because what is hurting you is the only thing that will ever kill you. It's the only thing that will ever cause a disease or suffering in you. Refuse to face and forgive your suffering, and you hold fast to your diseases. Now, forgiveness in this context is the original first century Aramaic concept of forgiveness. And where we live in a culture that because of the premature cognitive commitment to denial, dissociation, and blame, that is, it's all your fault, is so deep... We've totally reversed the forgiveness process. And the whole world holds a belief that the way you forgive is to let somebody else off the hook for what's happening inside of you. How many tens of millions of years do you suppose it's going to take of saying, if you've got an energy in your tissue structure that's causing you pain, how many tens of millions of years is it going to take of saying to somebody else, I forgive you for my rage that's hurting me. I forgive you for the sadness that's bothering me. I forgive you for the pain that's in my gut. I forgive you for the pain that's in my nose. I forgive you for the pain that's in my big toe. How many tens of millions of years do you suppose it's going to take of letting other people off the hook to change the content of your cellular structure? It's never going to happen. 
If you have a premature cognitive commitment to forgiveness, probably 5, 10, 15 years from now, you and I will have a conversation, and you'll tell me about a situation that happened, and you'll say, but then I forgave them. That's how, I mean, I've watched people after 20 years doing this work that are still saying, I forgave myself or I forgave them. And it just speaks to that thing that the psychologists have called premature cognitive commitment. Once I've made my mind up, the chance of changing it, unless I'm really conscious and I know how my mind works and how to change it, it's going to stay that way. And you just take a look around at the whole culture, and the whole culture is playing that game. That's why the murder rate is so high. That's why we see police killing people all over the country all the time. That's why we see uh, military actions slaughtering people by the tens of thousands, tens of tens of thousands. Latest numbers from Physicians for Social Responsibility out of Iraq are approximately 1.5 million people. Mostly women and children. Can you feel the impact of that energy? It's interesting. Moses came up with a really brilliant piece of advice for people several thousand years ago. Because you see, they lived in a culture where if somebody did a violence to another person, the person who had the violence done to them would up the ante and do ten times the violence to their offender. And then the offender would do ten times the violence. And then the offender who was offended after being offending and offending the offender would do twenty times the violence. And it just escalated to insanity. Now, many people who look through a mind of hostility or fear and the premature cognitive commitment to blame Hear Moses' words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is permission to go sock it to him. Even Moses, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard these words, literally, word for word. Even Moses said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, if you look at that directive through a mindset of rachma, of love, as we teach in this work, what you'll see is that Moses was saying, look, you know, if somebody punches you in the nose you can't go slaughter their whole village which is kind of the sort of thing that was happening back then if somebody ostensibly blows up a building in New York and kills 3,000 people at least accusations done nothing's ever been tied back to Iraq on that by the way in any legal sense you can't go kill one and a half million people that's insane. And those one and a half million people, the relatives that are dead, they're going to come back and they're going to escalate it ten times over. And that's exactly what's happening. Moses had the answer for this 2000, several thousand years ago. What's that, three, 3,500 years? Moses had the answer for that. But nobody's listening. Why? Because our culture has a premature cognitive commitment to, you made me mad, you made me sad. You hurt me, you damaged me, therefore, I'll get even. Or even, I'll let you off the hook, I'll forgive you. And the hurt remains within. So as I talked talk to this woman, I had to, you know, play John the Baptist as gingerly and as carefully as I could. Because when you inform somebody who's got a really deep commitment to, they hurt me, and it's a lie, and you point out the lie, what happens to the mind who holds that they hurt me is their stress goes out. Now, fortunately, this person's done enough of the work to be able to go, ah, take a breath. Oh, yeah, that's right. I realize this is my hurt, and yeah, I knew this long before I ever met this person, and yeah, I'm ready to actually engage in forgiveness and go inside myself and remove my hurt. Forgiveness is a tool of removal. It has nothing to do with letting other people off the hook because you're in pain, turmoil, or trauma. Give up your commitment, please, to believing that somebody else is the cause of that. And, and I'm, I'm saying this, not just for you, but for myself too. I realize how, 
how difficult a lesson it is to learn. Because my mind, too, still comes up with a hallucination that somebody else did it to me. (laughs) Years of doing their work, and there's still times when the deeper stuff comes up. It comes up with its generational brainwash attached that this is somebody else's fault. And when I believe it's somebody else's fault, I disable myself in the ability to clean that part of my mind up and heal that part of me. Which means anybody who shows up in my life and resonates that part of me, I'm going to be blaming them for my heart. And if there are no enemies that happen to be available, your best friend will do. Your children will do. Your spouse will do. Your parents will do. If your parents resonate that hurt in you and you're committed to blaming somebody else rather than being responsible for what's going on inside of you, then you'll point your vehemence at your parents. How does horrific child abuse or the murder of a child happen in a family? It's exactly that principle. The child resonates those brain cells and the adult who doesn't know any better goes into a fit of rage and attacks thinking that this three-year-old child could possibly hurt them. But there's nothing logical or rational about this non-being mind, this mind of the body that stores these generational commitments to lies. So we're here to see through the lies, to love truth enough to see the truth, to be willing to question everything that brings forward any form of discomfort and to remove what never belonged. And as you remove what never belonged and the things that don't belong in your energy field, the things that are absolutely 1,000% yours, and you will only feel them because they're in you, not because somebody does anything, is anything that's less than love. If you're capable of feeling that, which is less than love, then you're going to have to set your life up in a way that you start to chip away at those false beliefs. And you're going to have to set your life up in a way that you get to confront the hidden parts of your mind and clean them up. That's one of the reasons for this radio show, to support people every day, chipping away at that piece by piece. That's the reason for the support groups for Mindshifter support groups, people who support each other in doing this work. That's the reason for intensives. You know, most people habitually organize their lives out of the same dynamics that their power person did so that they never have to confront or deal with what's hidden in their minds, that they can always stay on the lamb and blaming everybody else for it. If you're ready for something different to happen, then you might want to look at the intensive schedule for this summer. Come join us to do another piece of work. We promise we will take you out of your comfort zone. We promise that you will get to look at everything you've never dealt with. And we promise that you'll get support from people who've done the same in breaking through those things and letting go of them. And it's awesome when it happens. So that's what we're here to support. That's what we're here to do in the world. And we appreciate you being part of the process. And if you have any thoughts, questions about that conversation, if you're on one of those stations that we can't see, our call-in number is 646-200-4169. We can't see on our control panel. You'd like to chat about this, then call that number and press 1. That puts a hand up in the phone queue, and we get to talk with you. If you're in the chat room and you want to have a conversation, call us, push 1. In the meantime, let's say hello to Dr. Tim. Are you with us today, Dr. Tim? I'm here. I was enjoying awesome. the Awesome. Well, I told you I was enjoying the protracted intro. Aha. Well, thank you. Good. So was I. I needed to hear it today. I had the you thought know, realizing just I had the thought how Go many ahead. times is he going to say the very same thing? Again and again, over and over, redundantly, repetitively, saying things over and over again, or again and again. 
you know, how many times? Hopefully enough. <laughs> hopefully there it he'll is. Keep saying, hopefully he'll keep saying it enough. So it sinks in at deeper levels and deeper levels. Yeah, I have um, I had the honor of giving the talk at the Rockford Unity this coming Sunday, and and in my mind, awesome. In my mind, you know, this is just I don't know what to say because it just to my mind it all sounds the same. No matter which stories I tell, no matter what science I try to bring in, or what personal stories I sh- to my mind it all sounds the same and um and in a way that used to resonate disappointment or fear in me and now it resonates gratitude because i'm seeing that at different different levels the way my mind can lie to me and tell me yeah but my situation's different yeah, but this time they what, what they did really is the cause of my upset. And in truth, it's never anything but an inside job. In truth, uh, what was his name? Um, I think therefore I am, not him. Um, the guy that said, uh, James, he said, the world outside is but the mirror. It's the reflection of what the man, as a man thinketh from that book. And he, he talked about this in, in the late 18, early 1900s. He said, the world outside is simply going to reflect to me what I've chosen to hold on to and what I've created in my thoughts. And the more I hear that, the more I, I get the, the, the hunch that every time there's an upset, it's the same old upset. It may I may dress it up differently. But it's the same old mistake I'm making thinking that I'm separate from the world around me. Thinking that there there could possibly be anyone or anything that's actually able to do anything that could hurt me or take anything of value from me. And when I buy into that, I create that absolute, vivid, 3D holographic hallucination, and that becomes my experience. But that's never really happened. So it was good, good for me to hear the same old thing, the same old way, and to get it at deeper and deeper levels. So thank you for that. It is delighted, and it is amazing just how powerfully the mind can create these 3D holographic images that are so convincing. (laughs) It's, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling when you really think about it. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeannie. Jeannie, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, there's nobody with their hand up, and and I'm alone in the chat room again. But um, I did a search on premature post, uh, premature cognitive commitment, and there are three examples right. that were given of studies. And you know, it's funny people can can see that this is a possibility when they look at it as a study, but then when they look at their own lives and how we're committed to certain things, then it's harder to to grasp that. But the three examples that they gave um, was one that in India, they used to train elephants, they'd take them as a baby and they would tie them with an iron chain to a huge tree. And then they would start reducing the size of the chain and the size of the tree even. And ultimately, they could tie an elephant, which, I mean, is huge by this time, with a little flimsy rope to just a little green plant. And the elephant would not be able to escape because it had already made a commitment in its mind-body that it was in a prison. And then they gave another one of an example they did with an aquarium that had a glass uh, partition in it. And so there were so many fish on one side and so many on the other side. And after so long of a time, they removed the petition, and the fish would swim to the edge of where the petition had been and then turn around and swim back because they had made the commitment that that was as far as they could go in the tank. And then there was a third one, and it was um, that you could put flies in a jar and after a while remove the lid from the jar, 
And except for a few pioneers that would escape, the rest of the flies would stay in the jar because they had made a commitment that they were in a prison. And uh, so I thought those were really good examples. But then he goes on and he says, you know, so how many of us have structured realities in our mind and, and created a Wallace prison of our own design based on the game of pretense called history, that that's the way it's always been, so that's the way it's always going to be, and said, one must ask a question, are you unable to read minds or fly or walk through walls or manifest physical objects because it's really absolutely impossible or because it goes against the rules that you were taught since you were born and you've cognitively committed to them that they're true? So I thought that was interesting. So I put a link to that article in the notes as well. Great. Awesome. Well, you know, there's one other example, and and I don't really know for sure if this is true, but the way that I've studied and read it, and this goes back years and years and years ago, it's an example I used to use of this, but but they actually, you know, have things called a flea circus, and they would have this, you know, cardboard structure walls that they keep their flea circus in and of course the, the, the fleas could scale the wall jump the wall at you know no time flat wasn't a problem but they would put a clear cover on the their little flea circus and the flea would only jump so many times and hit the the cover and would realize that was the limit couldn't go further and of course, on my Facebook page, I've uh, just a couple of days ago, I get once again posted about every couple of weeks. I post this uh, thing about uh, the invisible prison of belief, and it's a guy whose dog wants to go out, and the glass that was in the um, storm door has been removed, so there's no door there, and the dog would stand barking at the door until the guy came over, you know. And the door is open. You know, the, the, the wooden door is open. And there's no glass in the storm door. But the dog won't go through the storm door. Because the dog knows that that door has to be open. You know, having tried, how many times is a puppy or what have you banged against it? And then it comes back on the outside of the door. Now, now it's it's really funny because what happens is the... Uh, when the dog comes back and barks to come back in and wants the owner to its owner to open the door, the owner actually steps out through the storm door where there's no glass, you know, demonstrating to the dog, well, you know, you can walk through this. <laughs> and the owner has to open the door without glass in it so the dog will go in the door. You know, and it's just, uh, you know, the, the world we live in and until we realize we're in a prison. And, and to me, that is one of the other awesome gifts of this process of forgiveness is that it gives us an opportunity to collapse the lies and experiment. Experiments in truth. I think somebody wrote a book called that. It might have been Mahatma Gandhi. I think it was that's what he called some of his work were experiments in truth. Anyway, Jeannie tells me that we have a caller. So let's say hello to our caller, sweetie. We actually we actually have three callers. The first one's area oh, cool. code nine one zero. Nine one zero, you're on the air. Hey Jeannie. Hey Michael. Hey Dr. Tim, it's Susan. Hey there, young lady. Welcome. How are you today? I'm great. I'm good. I'm out on the water fishing, so I'm um, I, I was almost ready. I won't take up much time. Let's just say that. I'll be. Um, Go I just for want it. to call and check in and say hello. And um, well, we haven't I heard your voice it. in a while, so go for it. What have you got to share with us? Well, I just I want to say thank you so much for the intro. It was absolutely right on. I was listening and I was thinking, wow, I, I was really it really was perfect for me to hear that. And you know, um, since. And I and I want to I want to say this because I don't have my notes me, but I want to say for the people who are considering going to an intensive, I I encourage you to just getting back from Florida and having the last couple of months um, of clearing. I'm, I would I don't even being in it as much as I have. It's hard to even express it except all I was doing was breathing most of the time as it cleared. Um, my, my, I hate to say advice, but what I like to do when I go 
is the first thing is to make a list of what I'm ready to be done with. And I mean, whatever I'm ready to be done with, whether it's a certain pattern in relationship, it's, uh, you know, some kind of addiction, the bat, when Michael introduces the intensive, just to state right up front, I'm ready to be done with this in front of the whole group um, because of what I found to be true, and I've been to five in a row intensive. Uh, it's very important for me to state to higher power Rupa Dekucha, this is what I'm willing to work on. This is what I'm ready to be done with. And I heard that from several of the old-timers when I went there. They would say, I'm ready to be done with it. And I'm like, it was powerful to see how it unfolded the rest of the intensive. So if you're ready to take your work to the next level and you're ready to be done with something, the best place I know to go is to Heartland, to one of the intensives, and it doesn't really matter which one you pick, um, because the real thing that happens is your vitality gets to such a level that you're able to clear out what doesn't belong and what's blocking me from being loved. And when I'm connected to love, I have my highest intelligence, so I know what to do, what to say, where to go, who to be with, and that's what the object for me is the goal that I would love to create, is living in a space of love. And also I want to Yay. create a community. Yeah, thank you. And I want to create a community that will support me when I get off target and I get in the hallucination to gently say to me, um, are you in a hallucination? Because that immediately starts the wheels in my mind to turn and um, to myself I'm saying, okay, am I feeling loving? And if I'm not, then I can guarantee you I'm in a hallucination. And then I can start to have feedback and get some kind of clarity, and that's what I I asked Linda to do. She uh, was with me as my uh, roommate at Heartland in Florida, and I knew that I had a lot of stuff up, and I was going into non-being and hallucination uh, very quickly. And I asked her, I said, just look across the room and ask me, are you in a hallucination? And that will be the greatest gift you can give me, because she said, how can I support you? And that that's just my feedback on this going to intensives and, and what 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 works for me and what what seems to not work for me. So anyway, and and it's just so important if you're willing, and I know I am, uh, to be done with all of this drama and trauma and live a life that's loving and peaceful, calm and serene. Um, the best thing I know to do is to go and get that vitality up and dump it. And um, I will tell you, after the Florida trip, it has been a process after getting back home of, uh, you know, being willing to um, breathe. Um, I think the greatest um, salvation has been my mind shifter group, and that is because I am committed to show up, to open the church doors, to set up the group, and to lead it. And even when I'm in my stuff, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to show up, and I'm going to lead the group, and I'm going to do. And all the time I'm saying exactly what Dr. Rice said a few minutes ago. I'm saying exactly what I need to hear. And I, I leave it, and I laugh to myself. I'm thinking, that meeting was for you. And uh, I know David Hayes used to tell me when he'd hang up, um, I hope you got a lot out of this because I did. I hope the meeting was good for you or whatever. And and he was right because it was mainly for me that I was talking. So anyway, so I want to share a little bit. And, Michael, if you have feedback, I'll be quiet and be willing to listen. Oh, go for it. You're, you're right on track. I mean, that's that's the whole bottom line of it is, you know, giving yourself the space, at least on occasion, to be where you're not in control so that you can keep things at bay and let the floodgates open and let it move. And of course it's always easy and fun, right? Oh, absolutely. That's sarcastic. <laughs> I know. It's, it's not fun at all. I'll be honest with you. And um, when I'm in a hallucination, being surrounded by people who could hold a space of love and realize who I truly am and um, know the truth and can hold that, that is the greatest gift anyone can ever give and for me it's just saying are you in a hallucination and then it's like of course I'm in insanity I'm insane at the moment help me and um and then that is to get the thoughts down you know and and I've worksheet is my best friend 
But what I've learned, and I wanted to talk a little bit about this, and I want to talk a little bit about the group doing the uh, worksheets the other night at my Mind Shifter group. But when I'm breathing, like, it has been really intense. And the most I could do, like, the thoughts are coming fast, the feelings are coming fast. Um, I don't, I, I choose to um, breathe and just keep my mouth shut. The thing I say, you know, is insane. So I'm just going to keep breathing. And that's what I'm doing. I just connect to Ruka and I say, and I think about my grandchild, which helps me to bring love in. And then I just keep open mouth, connected breath, even if I'm working. And a lot of times what Ruka's instruction would be to me when I would be in the overwhelmness of it, go for a walk. Walk as fast as you can. Because what do you have to do when you're walking? You have to breathe. And that was helpful for me. So that was one of the things I did after I got back. And I, 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 I really set some clear boundaries around the telephone. I took Facebook off my phone. I, I, you know, the distraction uh, that my ego was looking for was not helpful. So anyway, that's, that's the, the next piece I wanted to add to that is just to give myself, be good to myself, be kind, eat healthy food. And, you know, I continue eating raw. And this is another big piece of this is that I laid sugar down going to Florida. Thanks to uh, the support of that intensive, I was able to completely clean out my cupboards and to lay that drug down um, and to um, to continue to lay it down after I got home. And I want to thank Ari. I'm making some of the best Asian cashew dressing. I mean, I tell you what, every time I make that, I, tell, I want to tell everybody listening from Heartland, get it. And if you don't know the recipes to make, call me. That recipe for the Asian cashew uh, dressing, uh, ginger, oh, my goodness, it is so good. Um, and then I make truffles for myself, you know, and, and some people have said, and I like Michael's feedback, you know, is that sugar because it's a lot of dates and um, I put cacao in mine and, of course, depending on the nuts, uh, the walnuts are the the uh, most oily that I've seen. But anyway, it has helped me to continue down the path of walking away from sugar and continuing to uh, breathe because all my stuff was numb to sugar. I mean, Daddy, if I started to cry as a child, my father would say, would you like to go get some ice cream? And that immediately shifted everything. We went and got this sugar fix, um, and he gave me the tool that he used. When he wasn't drinking and he laid the alcohol down, he picked up the sugar. And um, I know that was the best he could, and today I'd like to lay that drug down too. So now I've got a couple more that I'm looking at, but... Anyway, so I've got one I want to share. Well, just a thought. A thought on your question there. Because you get rid of sugar doesn't mean you can't have sweetness in your diet or in your life. When we're talking about sugar, we're talking about this refined white powder that is a really disastrous drug. We're not talking about sweetness. You know, one of the ways that, um, that, you know, historically – We've been able to tell when a fruit or a vegetable is at the peak of its ripeness is its sweetness. There's a thing called the Brixie scale. You actually, you know, the farmer goes out in the field and with a Brixie meter reads the Brixie uh, reading on his tomatoes. And it's like, okay, these are really at the peak of ripeness now. These are ready to go or they're right on the edge of it. And so it's, it's perfectly wonderful to have sweetness in your life. It's just that when you take all the nutrients that are designed to be with the sweetness away – then you end up with a drug. You know, some of the healthiest teeth in the world are people who work in sugarcane fields. And they're walking around chewing on sugarcane all the time. But the sugarcane goes deep into the earth and pulls up all kinds of minerals and nutrients. If the soil is, is decent, then there's all kinds of nutrients there. And when the nutrients that are designed to be with the sugar are there, then sweetness is a wonderful thing. The problem is when we overload ourselves with the refined drug, that's a whole different game. So have at the sweetness. Have at the sweetness. And, you know, things like whole dates, uh, a little bit of maple syrup, stevia. You know, there are lots of ways to to add sweetness without uh, having anything to do with sugar. Well, that is is exactly what I've done. And I'll tell you something that I've, 
I watched Ari do at the intensive was eat a big bowl of sprouts. So I started sprouting and um, on a small scale, but as many as I can eat, and um, that and, and just vegetables with the dressing. It's amazing what you can, and it's, it's very satisfying. That's the one thing I'll say is that most of the time when I was eating the fad diet, let's say that, and more or less, I had cleaned it up a little, you know. Wow, I just had a fish bite. Um, but anyway, um, it was, and I don't eat my fish, by the way. They're my friends. I just catch them, kiss them, and put them back. Um, but, you know, the one thing I see now is that I'm satisfied. You know, there's not that looking for something later. It's like I am completely satisfied. So that's the beautiful thing about eating. Uh, and I do organic vegetables and and everything that I'm eating. So anyway, that's enough about that. But what I want to – and I, anything I'll be willing to answer, I just want to make sure that I, I tell about the Mind Shifter group the other night, if you have time for me. And I know there's other callers, so maybe I should um, – Go for it. Call back. Go for it. Okay, I'll be quick. Go for it. Um, we did a worksheet the other night. Uh, when I got to Mind Shifter, I had four people there that were in my Laws of Living class. And usually one person does a worksheet and the other three will, you know, support. And there's a couple that are very timid and rarely ever will take the, the, the limelight. So what I did was I offered exactly what we did in Florida. At the end of the intensive, it was about four or five of us downstairs near the kitchen. And we were all talking about how we were that the intensive was coming to an end. And I said, why don't we just do an experiment here and do a, a, a group worksheet? We're all having the same thoughts and feelings. I said, let's each one. So I passed out those worksheets. You were so nice. You and Jeannie had like a big stack of worksheets there front and back. And we passed them out. And each individual we did it, but we, we filled in the blanks and we read it out loud as a group. And it was powerful. It was really powerful for us. We all felt so much better at the end when it got to number six, which we were doing the seven steps. Anyway, so that night um, and the next morning, the, the demonstration of it was when we came downstairs, one of the ladies that uh, didn't join us for that worksheet just because we, she wasn't there um, she came down, and she was sad about leaving. And the ones who had done the worksheet, we were packed and in the car. It, my stuff was in the car, which was never – I cry usually every intensive on the last day. So, anyway, it was a difference, and I could see it with this other lady that came down because we were in such a different place. So I kind of made a note of that in my mind, but it had flipped it since I got home. I hadn't hadn't thought too much about it. Well, the other night, one of our uh, participants said, I want to do a, a group worksheet on vision. And every one of us in the group, we wear reading glasses, if not glasses. So we did that, uh, a worksheet on wanting healthy vision. And we did that together. And that was a powerful worksheet. And then I suggested the next one, which was even more powerful, was on wanting uh, a, a loving companion to share my life with or to grow old with. And, uh, you know, there were a couple people in the group that said, I don't even want one. You know, they just had that attitude. I don't even want to do this. And I said, well, I started continuing to do mine, and it was on hopeless. And as I started to say what my thought and my feeling and the situation was for me, the other two realized they were in denial, that they were acting like they didn't want it because they, they thought it was hopeless. And that was a big shift. Their eyes got big, and, and it was so funny because we finished that worksheet, and then the, the, uh, one of the other people said, now that you've opened up and I'm not in denial, now I'm sad. You can't, i got to do another one. Let's do one on sad about it before we leave. So we ended up doing half of our uh, mind shifter group, which is two hours long, to do intensive, I mean, to do worksheets as a group. And I just want to say, the ones that rarely do one and find it very difficult to follow the format and to read it, doing it as a group looked like opened the space for them to feel more comfortable with the sheet and to be willing to uh, see how it worked and to experience it as a demonstration. And I just thought that was, that was helpful, and I wanted to pass it on to the community 
because there might be other people out there that, that have a similar situation that they might could open up a few people that aren't really comfortable with the worksheet. They say it looks like, some of them say the tax form. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll, I just want to say that. And then I don't know if I want to go into the truth about cancer part, Michael, that we talked about. But one day, maybe in the future, we can talk about that. That'd be good. That'd be cool. Okay. Awesome. Okay. That's awesome yeah. input about the group worksheet. And, uh, and yes, I remember the, uh, the energy was palpable, the shift at the intensive when everybody was leaving uh, for the, the folks who had done that group worksheet the night before was definitely uh, palpable. So that's powerful. Also, yes. just one other thought on the, uh, on the sugar thing, uh, for those who might be wanting to break away and, uh, and let go of that addiction, another thing that can be helpful is there's a, uh, an amino acid called glutamine, and you can get it at health food stores or you know buy it online, what have you. And uh, a gram of uh, glutamine every four to six hours can help to take somebody through the craving without um, compromising the use of sugar. So that amino acid can be helpful in withdrawing from sugar and getting through the uh, the DTs. <laughs> right, and and for me it was emotional. When I get emotion, when I have an emotion start to surface, the first thing I do is look for the ice cream or the sugar. So I hear you. For me, and so instead of doing that, I realize it, have a cup of tea with some stevia while I do a worksheet or a brief, you know, take a walk. Yay. So anyway, thank nice. you. It was great to hear everybody, and I'm sending everybody love and um, wishing everybody the very best. Much appreciation. We appreciate what you're doing there and your sharing. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Much love. Have have fun on the lake. All right, bye-bye. Okay, gee, you've got another caller for us. We've got about eight minutes here, seven and a half minutes. Our next caller is area code 781. You're on the air. Hi, it's Ron in Massachusetts. Well, hey there, young man. How are you? Good to hear your voice. It's good to be heard. Um, hey. I missed your intro. I'll have to go back and listen to your intro. Um, but who was that uh, who was just speaking? What is her name? That was Susan Darnell. Susan Darnell is the lady who teaches laws of living in um, Wilmington, North Carolina, really having a, an awesome impact in the community there. Powerful. Yeah. See, I've heard of her. I've, I've heard of her um, doing laws of living and uh when i first couple minutes when she started talking i felt like i plugged into a power source that was wonderful what a great uh testimony about your uh about going to an intensive it's just awesome cool um she's and, a power uh, source she's, she's changing yeah. that community i love cool. uh the, the conversation about the the dog and and the uh the door when i first looked at that i kind of it didn't resonate with me too much, and then it's, it just really resonated with me a lot today. I thought of Yeshua, you know, showing um, <laughs> showing us, you know, how he could step through the door and back, and us looking and going, yeah, um, I need you to open it still. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, most people are still sitting around saying, open it for me. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, a very clear illustration of where I sit sometimes, uh, you know, as the dog trying to, um, and then, um, I, you know, I've been doing a lot of, uh, healing work basically full time, um, for a while now, even when I had a job, I was quite a bit. And, um, one of the worksheets that I did recently, um, I really have been, you know, since I've been transcribing, uh, the videos, the wagon videos, I've really, gotten into some of the fundamental core elements of of the work like that I've now just like the Dr. Tim said before about hearing things um, over and over again but getting them on deeper levels I've now just in love with telling myself the story that I really am convinced that somebody else is the cause you know if somebody else would clean up their act my life would be better and um you know, it's something that I had, had had I had allowed to become passe to me, and now I'm just like, oh my God, it's so real for me. And so I had done a worksheet where I really wrote that out that my story was that this person 
they're a hundred percent my problem. If she would change, then I would be I would be fine. And um, the goal that I selected was for her to just be love. And um, I canceled my goal for her to be love. And then what I touched into right away was came in the the part of the worksheet where it's to show a time when I have not fulfilled this. And I just got into how when I'm in a state, and I heard somebody on the on the phone yesterday, you know, who was getting into emotion, and Dr. Tim was telling, advising her to breathe, about how when I'm in, in a state, I am not um, inclined to choose love because I'm so committed to my story and being in a state that the idea of choosing love is uh, is not interesting to me in that state. And I started doing a mind shifter about how I easily choose love, my obvious newborn essence, um, which stirs the obvious love in everyone involved. And it just has moved. Um, it seems to be I'm moving just a tremendous amount of uh, energy as I incorporate these elements of obviousness um, about my, my essence as love. And, uh, of course, I invite any feedback on that, but I'm right, calling also because I wanted to ask you um, about what you were saying before about the, the nature of the mind and how convincing it is. In transcribing, I got into to doing a little bit of research on David Bohm and his uh, holonomic um, model of the mind, and I just wondered if maybe if you could maybe elucidate a little bit about David Bohm's uh, work on on what he did, you know, how that relates to your work, if that's okay. And of course, comment on any of my other thoughts. Michael, if you're talking, we can't hear you. Well, silent now, Michael. Michael. Well, uh, since there's only a couple minutes left. The David Bohm business is about sustained incoherence. Is that what you're referring to? Well, I was referring to a specific piece of work that he did that, that Michael mentioned in the video called the holonomic model of the mind, and it gets into the, the kind of holographic nature of how our mind um, produces uh, uh, its realities. And uh, Yeah, well, essentially what he's talking about is the same thing Krishnamurti talks about, is that we create every problem we have with our thoughts. You know, it's a it's a more complex way to talk about what what happens is nowhere near as important as how I interpret it and then choose to respond to it. And both Krishnamurti and David Bohm have some wonderful conversations that you can get on YouTube where Great. they're both in agreement that it's the nature of thought itself, it's the system and the nature of it itself which creates our problems. And so within that system, there is no solution. And we have to go outside the realm of thought to find a solution to the problem we created in that system. So I know we're just about out of time. I don't know how close we are, Jeannie, but maybe you want to close out? Yeah, we're down to about 60 seconds. And my apology, my phone just decided to reset itself there, as you said, David Bowman, so I didn't hear the rest of your comment. But uh, he's got some awesome insight for sure. So go ahead and close because we are down to about 60 seconds. All right. Well, much appreciation for your participation. And Ron, in particular, those transcriptions are going to be extremely useful in what we're doing and uh, much appreciation for that. And beyond that, and your your uh, insight and uh, shift, there'll be a, a new minor edit happening to the worksheet. Ron had a nice piece of the puzzle to give me earlier today, so thanks for that as well. And uh, everybody, we invite you to create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and myself, Jeannie Rice, as we present the Internal Aramaic Process of Forgiveness. 
We are here every Monday through Friday from 1 to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Earth Angels Radio. For more on Michael, myself, or Aramaic Forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.